Hi, and welcome to Theology Gals. I'm Colleen Sharp, and Angela Whitehorn is my co-host. And we are doing a special episode today with Dewey Roberts. And if you haven't listened to our previous episodes on Federal Vision, I would stop this recording, go back and listen to those first, because this is going to be a special Federal Vision question and answer episode. There's some different things that have come up, questions that some of our listeners have asked that weren't answered on the earlier episodes or things which came up um, because of the earlier episodes. And that's what we're going to be dealing with here today. So, Dewey, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate that you're taking some more time to join us to, to discuss this. And I think the first thing I'm going to ask is probably the thing I've heard the most, and that is, why is Federal Vision a heresy? What parts of Federal Vision make it a heresy? That's a great question. It's one of the things that, one of the reasons I wrote the book is to show the various areas and ways in which the Federal Vision is a heresy. But I would say, first of all, it's a heresy because it is legalism, uh, and legalism is a heresy. Uh, and I say that because legalism has been theologically defined and biblically defined as uh, having two major areas of problems. One is uh, moral works of righteousness. That is, you are saved by your own moral works. The other is ceremonial works of righteousness. You are saved by participating in various ceremonies. Now, the federal vision has both of those things. It has the moral works of righteousness in that it teaches covenant faithfulness is the way of gaining acceptance with God and that we will finally be justified on the basis of the general nature of our covenant faithfulness. If we have been generally what we should have been, then we will be justified finally uh, at the day of judgment. That's a heresy. And the church has always esteemed that to be a heresy. The other one is the ceremonial works of righteousness. Uh, and they have that very strong emphasis. In fact, that's part and parcel with the federal vision is their wrong view, their Roman Catholic view of the sacraments, particularly of baptism. Uh, and in my book, I showed that the position that the federal vision takes on baptism is identical with what Thomas Aquinas laid down in his understanding of the sacrament of baptism and what it does. Uh, and so they believe that salvation is given to us. The benefits of Christ are given to us through baptism, which of course means that baptism is replacing the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so to begin with, that's why it is a heresy. Uh, but then you dig in deeper, and you find that on particular doctrines of salvation, they're heretical. I start my book, and I might say here that a an interview is never quite like giving a lecture on something where you're going into great de detail, because I'm answering questions here, but, but I couldn't give you in this podcast what my chapter on regeneration gives in the book. But anyone who questions whether or not the federal vision is a heresy, 
they need to go and read that particular chapter. And I want to read to you some of the things that the Federal Vision people say. This is chapter two in my book. And in my book, I don't just make sweeping statements about the Federal Vision. I quote them uh, verbatim. Then I show what their view is in comparison to the the uh, historic Christian faith, the great doctrinal statements and confessions, uh, the great theologians, and the great commentators on Scripture. But this is what James Jordan, a Federal Vision proponent, said about regeneration. He says, my thesis is there is no such thing as regeneration in the sense in which Reformed theology since Dort uh, has spoken of it. The Bible says nothing about a permanent change in the hearts of those elected to heaven. And he's other quotes, he says the same thing. And Rich Lusk says the same kind of thing. And others do as well. In fact, Doug Wilson discounts the whole matter of regeneration and says that that's talking about the regeneration of all things, the heaven, new heavens and the new earth. But it's not talking about something that's personal in nature. Uh, and so by denying regeneration, they deny the need of a Savior. They deny the need of the Holy Spirit working in our lives lives to give them a true new spiritual life. Uh, and all other doctrines of salvation flowing from that, therefore, are wrong and heretical. When you look at justification by faith alone, I found it interesting that some Federal Vision people will try to say they believe in justification by faith alone, and then you question them about it, and they they come back and they take the position of well, what I mean by justification by faith alone is that you have this justification by your faithfulness alone. So they've completely turned it around. Instead of faith in Christ, it's my faithfulness alone that saves me. And that's completely different than what the Scripture teaches us and the great Reformed creeds and theologians teach us. And, you know, I forgot to say this in the beginning, but uh, I'll have it linked in the episode notes. We do recommend buying Dewey Roberts' book, Historic Christianity and the Federal Vision, because it is very thorough. I mean, we're just doing a light summary here, but everything that he talks about in these episodes, um, he does in great detail in the book. Dewey, some people don't understand why we as Presbyterians baptize our babies, but then reserve communion for those that have made a profession of faith. Can you explain that? Sure. You know, that's always a question. Some people think, well, if the children are in the covenant to be baptized, then they're certainly in the covenant uh, to come to the Lord's Supper. Uh, and we do believe that children are in the covenant, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and infants were circumcised. Infants, uh, we believe, are to be baptized in the New Testament, though we have to add this one caveat, and that is that we don't know of any particular place in the New Testament that distinctly records an infant baptism, yet we believe that the covenant uh, is still there, and the promise is there in Acts 2, 38 to 39, where it says, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Uh, so we do believe that. But the real question then is, why do we not allow the children to come to the Lord's Supper? 
You know, it's interesting, and I think that people many times get this just backwards. There are two great works of salvation. One is regeneration. The other is saving faith. Uh, Our Lord Jesus deals with both of those in John, the third chapter, where he first of all tells Nicodemus that he must be born again. And after having communicated that truth to him, he then tells him that he must believe uh, in the son of God who was lifted up from the earth, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. And so there's regeneration and saving faith. And they come to us in that order. But there's been confusion about what the sacraments are. And I want to simply say that, that the circumcision and baptism relate to the need of regeneration. This is why the federal vision is so wrong in denying, or at least in many of them denying the whole matter of regeneration. Uh, the very first thing about baptism and circumcision is that it, it conveys to us the need of having a cleansed nature, a new nature. It is the sacrament of regeneration. The Lord's Supper is the sacrament of saving faith. A person cannot come to the Lord's Supper until he has come to saving faith. Uh, it, it would be something that would be contrary uh, to the Word of God. And there are many places that uh, relate this to us, but particularly in 1 Corinthians. Uh, 11, where the Apostle Paul tells us that a person must be able to discern, he must be able to judge uh, his own interest in the body of Christ. Uh, And that is, he must be able to examine himself so that he can see that he truly has faith and he is reaching out to Christ uh, in coming to the Lord's Supper. And until a person is able to do that, then it would be wrong to give them the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. One of the gals from our group messaged me and had this question for you. She'd been talking to some of the Federal Vision proponents, and this was one thing she wasn't sure how to answer them on, and that is some Federal Vision visionists use the argument that children were included in the Passover, so they should be included in communion. So how do we respond to that? Thank you for that question. That's great. Um, because it illustrates something that is a fundamental problem with the people in the federal vision, that is that they make sweeping statements that are not backed up with the scripture proofs that they claim for them. For instance, the statement is that children were included in the covenant and were included in the Passover in the Old Testament. There is not one verse in the Bible that says that, uh, where that they were participating in and eating of that. This is something that is uh, made up by the Federal Vision people to support their argument. Uh, But there's no place that indicates that. Uh, In fact, both in the Old Testament in Exodus 12 and then again in 1 Corinthians 11, we have the fact that a person must be of such an age that they can begin to question what this is all about, and then you give them the answer to it. I was reading through some of this, and I came across some of the arguments of the Federal Vision people, and they tried to say, based on Deuteronomy 16, that God said that the the Passover was for your sons and your daughters, your your servants, the stranger in the land, etc., etc. 
That's not what Deuteronomy 16 says. It says that that's uh, something that we should remember when the Feast of Booths is celebrated, not the Feast of Passover. Earlier in the chapter about the Feast of Passover, it doesn't say anything about giving this Passover to your sons and your daughters and to the stranger in the land and all that stuff. And so they're confusing things. They are taking things out of context and building their own doctrine upon it. And that's a dangerous thing to do. The fact of the matter is, uh, and and also have seen where some people have said that none of the great theologians ever spoke anything about the matter of pedo communion or said anything against it. Uh, And once again, that's wrong. John Calvin in his commentaries on uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy, and then in his institutes speaks very clearly about this, that uh, until that the scripture teaches that until a person reaches the point where they can make a judgment for themselves, they are not to be brought to the Lord's table because that would be eating and drinking damnation to themselves. Uh, And, I could give a couple of quotes from Calvin relative to this, and I think maybe I should just read something here where people can see this. He says in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4, Chapter 16 and Section 30, he says, A self-examination ought therefore to come first. This is with respect to uh, dealing with the question of baptism and the Lord's Supper, why children can partake of one but not of the other. Uh, He says, A self-examination ought therefore to come first, that is, concerning the Lord's Supper, and that's what he's dealing with in that part. And it is vain to expect this of infants. Again, he who eats unworthily eats and drinks condemnation for himself, not discerning the body of the Lord. But I think another problem that the Federal Vision people have here is that they think that the relationship between the Old and the New Testament is simply one of continuity. And they never see that it's also one of contrast. It's also one of fulfillment. But when we answer this question, we have to take 1 Corinthians 11 as determinative of the right position. So if there was some confusion about what was meant in Exodus 12, 1 Corinthians 11 makes it clear that a person has to be able to discern the body and the blood of Christ, lest they would be eating and drinking unworthily to their damnation. You know, my father is a convert from Orthodox Judaism. So I actually have family that are still Orthodox Jews, even Hasidic, which is an extreme form of Orthodox Judaism. Or I shouldn't say extreme, but it is they really try to to follow things very closely. And there is a difference. I have I went to Passovers when I was a young child and there is there was a difference between the young children and then the ones who had come to a certain age and could confess the faith. Yes. Uh, I'm I'm sure that is so. I I didn't know that you had that particular connection, but uh, I would think that they were following the tradition that they've had for many long years of making that distinction between the little child and the one who had come to discernment. Right. And and it, within Judaism, I mean, there's even the bar mitzvah, the bat mitzvah, when they, they yeah. come to a certain age. And it is a turning point of how they are viewed within the congregation. So 
Well, you know, we were talking earlier about um, baptism and, and you mentioned how um, the federal visionists um, uh, essentially adopt sort of a, a Roman Catholic view of, of baptism. Um, you know, I've seen some criticism actually from the federal vision camp that accuses us of having a Zwinglian view of baptism. So I'm wondering, can you explain how our view is more than a memorialist view, how um, we are not Zwinglian in the position that we're taking? You know, that's an interesting question. It's also a very telling question on the part of uh, the people who asked it. That is accusing us of having a Zwinglian view. Uh, I remember many times reading in Dr. Lloyd-Jones' works that he would say that if you're in the right position, you have enemies on both the right and the left. For instance, uh, if you take the right position on justification by faith, you will have an enemy on one side, that is legalism, an enemy on the other side, that is antinomianism. And the scripture clearly navigates between those. And so he said that the right position is one where there are enemies on both sides. When the federal vision accuses us of taking a Zwinglian view, it's because they think that's the only possibility for us if we don't agree with them. They don't have an enemy on both sides. They just have one enemy, and it's on the far extreme, uh, and uh, they're on the other end. Uh, And that in itself is a proof that their position is wrong is because they don't have the enemies on both sides. Uh, But our position in the Westminster Confession of Faith is very clear that that the sacrament is more than a memorial. Uh, There is the real spiritual presence of Christ in the sacraments. And by faith, we really spiritually feed upon him and have fellowship with him not the physical presence. It's not as though the elements become the very body and blood of Christ, which is the heresy of Roman Catholicism, but rather that there's the spiritual presence there whereby we feed upon Christ and we have a means of grace like reading the Bible and praying. Uh, The Word of God, when we pray and we read it, comes alive to us and feeds our soul. And so does the sacraments. Uh, and so do the sacraments. They they feed us in that respect. Now, I've got some something to respond to here with respect to that. I'm trying to make sure uh, where I can turn this. Yes, in my book, I want to read to you a couple of things uh, that show that that um, we did not have a Zwinglian view of baptism. Uh, that we certainly believe it's more than the memorialist view. I quote from Calvin, who wrote the Consensus Tigerinus, trying to bring the Reformers together at the time of the Reformation, and it's on pages 204, 205 in my book. I don't want to read this. He says this. He says, what would these worthy men have here? Would they have God to act by the sacraments? We teach so. Would they have faith to be exercised, cherished, aided, confirmed by them? This too we assent. Would they have the power of the Holy Spirit to be exerted in them and make them available for the salvation of God's elect? We concede this also. The question turns upon this. 
Should we ascribe all the parts of our salvation entirely to God alone, or does he himself, by using the sacraments, transfer part of his praise to them? When we say that the signs are not available to all indiscriminately, but to the elect only, to whom the inward and effectual working of the Spirit is applied, the thing is too clear to require a lengthened statement. For if anyone wishes to make the scripture, make the effect common to all, he is not only refuted by the testimony of scripture, but by experience. So Calvin very clearly there takes a position in that document, which Charles Hodge said was the most mature statement about the sacraments that came out of the Protestant Reformation. But Calvin in that document, the consensus Tigorinus, said that the sacraments only are effective for the elect. They are not effective indiscriminately to all who participate in them. And that's where the heresy of the federal vision is. They say when a child is baptized, every single one of them indiscriminately get everything of Christ's blessings and of his benefits. And then it's up to him to make good use of those. Calvin, one of the reformers, uh, disagreed with that view. Uh, and he said, it's only for the elect. Now, once again, George Gillespie, a member of the Westminster Assembly, makes it very clear what the position of the Westminster Assembly was concerning the sacraments. And this is on page 160 in my book. I'm going to read this also because this is very important. I hear people in the Federal Vision from time to time say that they are only believing what the Westminster Confession of Faith teaches. Uh, and one of the ways that they say that is that they say that there are some words that are used by the Confession of Faith, which are uh, that the sacraments are signified, sealed, and exhibited to us. Well, the real question is, what does the word exhibit mean? What did the writers of the Westminster Confession of Faith mean by that word when they wrote it? Now, we could dispute back and forth on it, uh, but I think the right way to go is to simply go to one of the members of the Westminster Assembly and let us tell, let him tell us what he and the others meant by using that word. And George Gillespie, one of the Scottish commissioners, did that. And he said this concerning the intended meaning of the word exhibit by the Westminster divines. He said, I answer that exhibition which they speak of is not the giving of grace where it is not, as is manifested by the aforequoted testimonies, but an exhibition to believers a real, effectual, lively application of Christ and of all his benefits to everyone that believeth for the strengthening, confirming, and conform comforting of the soul. Our divines do not say that the sacraments are exhibitive ordinances wherein grace is communicated to those who have none of it, to unconverted or unbelieving persons. Uh, and so what he's saying is something that undercuts the whole idea of the federal vision that they are only believing what the Westminster Confession of Faith says. George Gillespie said, we do not at all believe that this is exhibited to people who are not believers. It's exhibited only to believers. 
Uh, and so their view is undercut thereby. So one of the things that that I'm sure you've heard this lots of times, <laughs> we heard this after our last episodes, some of the Federal Vision people have said, you should be going to these teachers privately before speaking publicly. How do you respond to that? Uh, well, I think there's a very clear principle in the scripture that Matters that are publicly or generally known do not require going to a person in private, but that private matters or things that are known only to a small number of people are matters for which we ought to go to them in private first. Uh, and so they have turned the scriptural principle on its head thereby. Uh, and they have said that even though they've published all these books and put those writings out there and people all over the world read about it, and it's not something that's unknown at all, yet we cannot say anything one way or another about that until we have gone to them. The interesting thing is they break their own principle uh, because uh, they s will say things about lots of other people uh, and they have not gone to them in private. Or I've also heard it said this way. Somebody said, you shouldn't say anything about Dr. Bonson because he's now dead. Well, then why did Doug Wilson accuse B.B. Warfield of being a Gnostic since B.B. Warfield is dead? Uh, and we could go on and on about such things like this. Uh, so that if they want to go by that principle, which is unscriptural, in my opinion, then they are not even fulfilling it themselves. But I think that the right principle is, if this was a matter between me and them, if it was a matter that was only known to a few people, it would be the right and the proper thing to go to them, first of all, to make sure that we understand it. But when they've published books, when they've done blogs, when they have done podcasts and YouTube videos, and their teaching is out there indiscriminately for the world to see, then it's generally known, uh, and it's appropriate uh, to therefore be generally responded to, uh, and that's what we're doing. In fact, their principle would mean basically that you could never say anything against any theological system where the people who held those systems are now deceased. We couldn't say anything about Pelagius or Aquinas. We couldn't speak about the, uh, the um, philosophers of Greece and Rome. We couldn't analyze or assess anything they had to say. We couldn't say anything about even the Pharisees or the Judaizers because those people are dead. Uh, and so it really becomes a ridiculous position. Uh, and one which they themselves are not even able to hold. Uh, but on the other hand, it's become a position where the Christian church has accepted for years that things are to be dealt with in a gentlemanly way. One person takes position, writes a book, and it's appropriate for another person to respond to that. Now, I tried to write my book, and I believe I succeeded in writing it in, in such a way that I dealt with the theological system but did not deal with personalities. The fact of the matter is that 
some of the people in the Federal Vision have been long, long time friends of mine. Uh, and it was with tears in my eyes that I had to write a lot of the things that I did. Uh, and I started to even have a section in there where I expressed that kind of thing. And I, I held back at the end because I wanted to deal with it in an unemotional way. Uh, but I believe that the bottom line is it's appropriate to deal with things that are put out there. The church does this many times. We have study committees that will study an issue and we'll have a majority report and a minority report. And the minority report will respond to what the majority report says. This is just the appropriate way to deal with matters that are generally known. You know, I think we can uh, relate to that a little on this podcast. Um, just the, the basic idea that, you know, we're not, um, we're not, um, engaging in ad hominem personal criticism, you know, we're not having a podcast or writing a book about um, uh, your shirt's ugly and I don't like you. We're we're talking about ideas and um, theology, and um, I liked what you said about um, keeping emotion out of it and um, just really getting down to evaluating these are the beliefs. Let's compare them to historic Christianity. Let's compare them to Scripture and see how it holds up and that really is what the word of God tells us to do. Um, I, we had sort of a final question here. Um, you talked a little bit about um, some ob- observations that you made about Hinduism um, in our previous episode. Um, I wonder if you could clarify some of that and, and how that related to this discussion. Yes, I saw somewhere where someone had said that I was accusing Greg Bonson of believing in Hindu theology, <laughs> and I uh, uh, saw that, and I, I thought it was laughable because the person obviously missed entirely what my point was on that, uh, and that is, I never said that Greg Bonson believed in Hindu theology, and if I once I explain this, I think I'll be able to show that that I believe he did not believe in Hindu theology. But what I said was that the matter of legalism came into the Old Testament church and then into the New Testament Testament church when the Jews went off into captivity and were influenced by Hindu theology. Uh, And uh, therefore, there's a misunderstanding many times by people on why the Jews seem to undergo a difference in their theological position once they came back from captivity. Uh, Various uh, theologians have contemplated that idea, and they've come up with various solutions to it, N.T. Wright being one of them. And I think that they all miss the point because historically it can be shown uh, by several different great historians of the church that that's where the influence came and that the Pharisees as a party grew out of this new emphasis on purity uh, and um, that came from being infected with Hindu theology. The Hindus influenced the Babylonians and the Chaldeans. The Babylonians and Chaldeans influenced the Jews and the Babylonians and Chaldeans also 
influenced Greek philosophy. Uh, and so through those two ways, uh, Phariseeism came into the church, uh, and came into the Old Testament church and then into the New Testament church. Uh, and along with that, there were these doctrines uh, that as someone has described the new perspectives on Paul, that is a teaching that the Jews believe that you got in by grace and you stayed in by your covenant faithfulness. This emphasis on covenant faithfulness is something that comes out of Hindu theology. Uh, and then the whole matter of baptismal regeneration comes from Hindu theology. Six or seven or eight or nine centuries before Christ, the Hindus had this idea of baptismal regeneration in their theological system. Uh, and so that's how that came into the church. So it really does not influence me or make me stand up and pay attention when people say, well, early in the church, the church believed in baptismal regeneration. Because I say, well, not only that, they got it from the Hindus. Now, where did Greg Bonson stand on that? I want to say I was a personal friend of Greg Bonson's. I knew him. He was my professor, uh, and he was somebody that I held in high esteem, and I knew him well. Greg Bonson did not believe in baptismal regeneration. Uh, he did not believe that you attain salvation through your covenant faithfulness. Now, there were some errors in his theonomy, the theonomy, his theonomic system, that I think set the uh, framework for the development of the federal vision. But I believe that he was a theologian who was conflicted because on the one hand, he believed in evangelical theology, and on the other hand, he had this system of theonomy. Uh, and uh, in his evangelical theology, he did not believe that a person was saved on the basis of their covenant faithfulness. And he did not believe that a, that baptism uh, brought about baptismal regeneration. So Greg Bonson did not believe in Hindu theology. But anybody who believes in baptismal regeneration in either of the two forms that it is, that is a more subjective related of actually doing something on the inside of a, a little child who receives the baptism, or if it's more objectively related in that it uh, changes our standing, our status, but doesn't do anything internally in us. Anybody who believes in either one of those forms of baptismal regeneration is really just following a tradition that goes all the way back to the Hindus and has not one aspect of it flowing from the Old Testament or the New Testament. Uh, and the same with covenant faithfulness, because all of the Old Testament teaches us about the need of the grace of God for our salvation. And this matter of covenant faithfulness did not come from the Old Testament. It came from Hindu theology. Uh, so uh, before somebody says that I accused Greg Bonson of believing in Hindu theology, what they really need to ask is, do they believe in Hindu theology? Because that's really where it comes down to. Do they believe in these errors that can be traced all the way back to the Hindus? Uh, because as my book shows, the evidence is very clear uh, that that's where this comes from. 
is is there anything else that you think we've neglected to cover that you would like to um, mention as we wrap up this subject? Yeah, one thing that I want to say is that a podcast gives a general assessment of things, but it doesn't show all this the scholarship and the research that goes in. I think if people would pick up my book and read it and then try to either prove it or disprove it, and I don't care at which point they start, because I believe that the proof is there. Uh, and if somebody wants to disprove it, if they want to disprove it, then do the fundamental research to try to disprove it, because I think it will be a very valuable study for them if they will do that. What I think is wrong is when people, because they don't agree with something, they engage in name-calling and sloganeering. That's what I see almost without fail from people in the federal vision. Uh, They will accuse us falsely of being Zwinglians. They accuse us of being antinomians. They accuse us of all kinds of things, and they never offer one single evidence of it. They don't go to our statements and prove that this is the classical definition of antinomianism or uh, Zwinglianism or whatever. They just paint with a broad brush, and they say, this is proof uh, that uh, you are doing it, because I have said so. I found that in in um, the symposium that was done with Steve Wilkins and I think Rich Lusk on the Federal Vision, uh, and they said in the beginning that they, though others had accused them of heresy, that they would never delve into that. And then you don't read very far into the book until they start accusing people who disagree with them about the Federal Vision of several different heresies, and I have those enumerated in my book. Uh, And so what I've done in my book is I've taken direct quotes from these men, and I've compared their positions in those quotes with historic Christianity, with the great commentators of the Scripture, and with the great Reformed creeds. Uh, And I found them wanting in each one of those areas. Now, my challenge would be to them, don't just disagree, but prove either that I'm right or I'm wrong. Do the study, do the research. Don't be satisfied with simply throwing out a slogan or calling somebody by name, but do the research. Because when the federal vision arose, uh, and, and I actually know more of the history of how it arose than most people do. And I was at particular meetings where I saw things developing, but I still couldn't believe that some of my friends were going in that direction. But when, when it really came out into its bloom in the early 2000s, uh, and of course it had been in development before, but the federal vision came out into bloom in the 2000s. And I began to look at this. I had two convictions. Number one, I believed sincerely that I could prove it wrong because it was wrong. And number two, I was going to do whatever research I had to do to prove that it was wrong. Uh, Now, the more I researched the confessions, the great commentators of scripture and the great theologians, the more uh, all of the facts were on the side that I believed was right. uh, And none over on the other side. And so my challenge would simply be, 
If you don't like my book, prove it to be wrong or prove it to be right. Uh, and so that is the proper way to deal with these matters. And I really do recommend that people, even if you're a person who holds to federal vision, buy the book because we can't be 100% thorough on every single topic on a podcast. This is more like an introduction to his book, but really in the book, it's very well cited. Lots and lots of quotes, you know, showing that it is not biblical. So that that's going to be our recommendation also. We appreciate, Dewey, you spending so much time with us and being willing to answer some of these questions that have come in. I think it's going to be really helpful. So thank you for joining us for this special bonus episode, and we'll see you at our next episode.